In case you didn't know this about me, usually near the end of the announcement time, I make a quick pre-sermon bathroom run. Glad I didn't do that today. But anyway, thank you very much for uh, your generosity. Um, If I don't say this enough, which I'm sure I don't say it enough, uh, we are really, really, really grateful uh, to be serving here, Olivia and I. Um, We consider it a privilege. Uh, This church has been incredibly generous and incredibly loving and incredibly accepting of me um, and just our family as a whole. And so uh, we're really grateful and we love you guys and really mean that. So thanks, Kellen. (laughs) But all right. Well, last week we started a new sermon series on a question and it's a big question. It's a question of why did Jesus come? You know, this time of year, we sing songs about Jesus coming in human form. We put nativity scenes out in our yards. We see nativity scenes out in other people's yards. But sometimes I wonder, do we really sit back and honestly ask the question, why? Why do we do all this? Why did Jesus come? Why did the incarnation happen? Why did the incarnation happen specifically in the way it did? And as we talked about that last week, starting out the sermon series, I introduced another question, and it's a question that many of us wrestle with from time to time, maybe more than once throughout the course of our lives. And the question is, what does God look like? Have we ever sat back and wondered, what does God look like? Or maybe even more generally speaking, what is God like? What does he care about? What is his character like? What are the top priorities for God? And sometimes we tell ourselves, you know, I wish I could see God. I wish I could meet him and find out once for all, face to face, what does God look like and what is he like? Well, we talked about several different instances in the Old Testament where people see messengers from God or they are given visions from God. But we talked about how really in the big scheme of things, none of them truly see God. Abraham sees messengers from God, but he doesn't truly see God. Jacob sees a man sent from God that he wrestles with, but he doesn't truly see God. Samuel, Gideon, Solomon, these guys all have visions, but none of them truly, fully see God. Moses comes close. He sees God's back, but he doesn't get to see God's face because God says no one can see my face. So with all these stories in the Old Testament, it seems like we're so close to finding someone who has actually seen God. But the truth is they all fall short of the incarnation because the incarnation is Jesus putting on human flesh. It's Jesus being fully God and fully man at the same time. And when Jesus comes in the form of a human for the first time in all of history, man is able to say, We have seen God. Jesus says in John chapter 14, verse 9, he tells his disciples, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. He specifically tells tells Philip and Thomas in layman's terms, if you want to see God, look at me. And that was the first reason we talked about why Jesus came. Jesus came in the flesh to reveal who God is. Now, this week, we'll be looking at a different reason, a second reason. And last week's word was reveal. This week's word is fulfill. But what exactly do we mean when we say Jesus came to fulfill 
That's what we're going to be talking about this morning. So if you have a Bible with you, open up with me to Matthew chapter 5. We're going to be in verses 17 through 20. If you're using one of our Bibles, this will be located on page 690. And if you don't own a Bible, grab one from the welcome desk before you leave today. But before we read our passage, let's pray together and then we'll get started. Father, we are grateful that you have revealed yourself to sinful people like us. You've revealed yourself through your word, but more than anything, you've revealed yourself through your son, Jesus. And God, thank you that we have the privilege and the honor of celebrating that each Christmas. But I pray that it won't just be a Christmas thing that we celebrate. I pray that we will consider every single day just how incredible it is that you revealed yourself in human form, that you sent your son to walk amongst us that you sent your son to show solidarity with us, even though he was perfect and we are so not perfect. God, I pray that as we look at your word today, that we will be inspired and that we'll gain confidence seeing that your son has fulfilled the Old Testament. And God, I pray that we'll understand more clearly what that means for us as we move forward this Christmas season, as we move forward in the weeks and months and years ahead as we follow you. God, we love you. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for this morning. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. All right, Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 17, if you'd read with me there. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called last in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So this passage that we just read, where Jesus is speaking to his disciples, This basically kicks off Jesus's famous Sermon on the Mount. He's speaking to a ton of people in this sermon. Most of them are probably his followers, but presumably there are people there who aren't his followers, that aren't his disciples. And the first thing he says in verse 17 is that he hasn't come to abolish the law or the prophets, but to fulfill them. Now, what exactly does he mean when he says the law or the prophets or the law and the prophets. Well, that was a common way to refer to the entire Old Testament. He's not just focusing on one or two specific parts of the Old Testament. When he uses that phrase, he's talking about the Old Testament in its entirety, all the way from Genesis to Malachi. And this was a common way that people would speak about the Old Testament. Jesus clearly shows a level of respect for the Old Testament. In his day, after all, the Old Testament was the Bible. That was Jesus's Bible. There wasn't a New Testament at this point in history. And not to mention, as Jesus speaks about the Old Testament, he seems to consider it authoritative and inspired, just like the New Testament would be years later. He doesn't look at the Old Testament and somehow imply or somehow teach that it is less than the word of God. Jesus clearly holds the Old Testament up as inspired and authoritative, the same way we do at Prairie View today. So he makes it clear. Don't throw out the Old Testament. 
It is not obsolete. In fact, it still matters. But then he says something interesting. He says that he's come to fulfill it. He even goes so far as saying that not a single dot will pass away until all is accomplished. He teaches that the Old Testament should still be read, should still be taught. Don't just get rid of it. But at the same time, Jesus does something very, very interesting here. And he seems to be responding to two very different understandings of the Old Testament role in the future. It seems as though he's responding to one extreme of those who would be too dismissive of the Old Testament. And this audience exists today just like it did back then. There are some people who would desire to see the Old Testament just completely abolished, just remove it from our Bibles, pretend it never happened, chalk it up to a bad portion of God's history because that's not what God is like. We know that now. Well, that's actually considered heresy and has been throughout the history of the church. And Jesus is responding to this group, this one extreme, and saying, no, don't just throw out the Old Testament. Not a single dot, not a single iota will pass away from this Old Testament. So don't think that you can just abolish it completely. But he also seems to be responding to another extreme. Those who might be a little bit too affirming of the Old Testament. Because he implies by saying that I came to fulfill the Old Testament... That it's not sufficient on its own. If the Old Testament was good enough, if the Old Testament could stand on its own, it wouldn't need fulfilling. And yet Jesus says, I have come to fulfill the law and the prophets. Both of these extremes, those people who would desire to throw the Old Testament out completely, they're wrong. And those who would believe that the Old Testament is perfectly fine the way it is, it doesn't need any help, it's complete, it's perfect in what it's trying to accomplish of saving people, Jesus says, no, it needs to be fulfilled. You're both wrong. But then he says something else. He takes it even further. He says something about righteousness. He says that unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, that would be a problem to his original audience, because to his original audience, they were the most righteous guys around. They understood everything. They knew the laws. They were holy. They were obedient. And so they're probably a little bit concerned when Jesus says, hey, you can enter the kingdom of heaven, but you need to be more righteous than those guys over there, because they were the most righteous guys around. And you have to think that some of his audience would be thinking, well, I guess I'm just out of luck. I guess I don't have any hope because I clearly can't be as righteous as those guys are over there. But then Jesus gets back to the idea of fulfilling the Old Testament. In the rest of that sermon, he talks about righteousness and what righteousness means. But we're going to see that Jesus is teaching in the Sermon on the Mount, that Jesus is teaching throughout the rest of his ministry, that Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection forever change and forever transform and turn on its head the whole idea of righteousness and what righteousness is all about. But back to this idea of fulfilling the Old Testament, I wanted to look at a few specific areas in which Jesus fulfills the Old Testament, a few specific ways, and I have four that I'd like to cover today. Number one, Jesus fulfills the role of victor over Satan, the role of victor 
over Satan. Now, we've talked about the fall of man in the past few months here at Prairie View. We've talked about Genesis 3 and Genesis 1 and 2, about how God created everything. He spoke it into being. Everything was perfect. Creation is all testifying to the glory of God. It is completely uncorrupt. It is totally and utterly good. And Adam and Eve are created in God's image, and they have a perfect relationship with one another. They have a perfect relationship with God. They've been given the Garden of Eden to tend and to live in harmony with all of creation. And everything seems to be going so great. But they're given one rule. Don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. There's no shortage of trees in the Garden of Eden. It's not like they're starving. So it seems like a pretty reasonable request. Adam and Eve agree. They go on about their lives. But then a serpent enters the picture. The serpent appeals to Eve's potential doubt about God's good intention for her and Adam. He says, you know, God doesn't truly mean that you'll die if you eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. I think God's bluffing a little bit. Do you really think it's going to be that big of a deal? Eve doesn't really seem to buy into that temptation. So then the serpent tries another temptation. And this time around, he says, Eve, God's just trying to keep you down. God's trying to hold you back from your full potential. He appeals to Eve's pride. And then just like that, Adam and Eve give in. They eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It seems like Satan, the serpent, it seems like he has won. At least this battle. It seems like he's effectively thwarted God's plan. It seems like he has effectively ruined creation forever to the point where it is no longer repairable. But then in Genesis 3, we see that little tiny glimmer of hope that we've talked about before. Genesis 3.15, when God is speaking to the serpent, he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head. And you shall bruise his heel. So God makes it clear to the serpent. Things look bleak right now. Things may seem like they've been totally thrown into chaos. But the story's not over yet. Something is coming. And specifically, God says that someone, someone born of a woman... That's kind of important to the idea of incarnation. Someone born of a woman will come and defeat Satan once and for all. Steve Yetton, the preacher that I spent several years learning under in Batesville, he refers to Genesis 3.15 as Mary's ultrasound. You think about ultrasounds when you get pregnant, you're excited to see the baby. Maybe you want to find out if it's a boy or a girl. You want to see the baby's face. You want to see how big the baby is. You want to show off the baby's face to everyone, even though you're the only one who can make out the face in that picture. You show it off anyway. Steve refers to this as Mary's ultrasound. They didn't have ultrasounds back then. Mary couldn't see what the baby inside of her looked like or what the baby would be like. But if she wanted to know what the baby in her womb would be like, she could have turned to Genesis 3.15 to know that he would one day be the one who finds victory over Satan. And ultimately, this glimmer of hope in Genesis 3.15, this glimmer would be seen again. Years and years and years later, this glimmer of hope would be seen again as a star over Bethlehem. Paul hits on this 
Genesis 3 idea of Jesus being the victor over sin and the victor over Satan in Romans chapter 5, verses 18 and 19. If I didn't say that earlier, we're going to be a lot of time in Romans today as well. Romans 5, 18 and 19. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Paul says that death comes by one man. Sin came into the world through one man, and that man was Adam. But another man has come. Fully God and fully man, born of a woman. And by this man, life comes into the world. There is a need for someone to defeat Satan in the Old Testament. And that need is fulfilled by Jesus. Fulfillment number two in the Old Testament. Jesus fulfills the promise to Abraham. This is an important theme all throughout the pages of Scripture that carries way past the Old Testament, into the New Testament as well. And we read in Genesis 12, 2 and 3, And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Abraham's going on about his business, nothing special about him, and yet God, in his grace, chooses him and says, Abraham, you're going to be given a huge family. You're going to have descendants that outnumber the stars in the sky, the sand on the seashore. You and your family are going to be blessed, but you and your family are also going to bless everyone around you. Every single nation will be blessed through what I'm doing through your family. But for the longest time in the Old Testament, it seems as though the only people that God seems to care that much about at times are the Jewish people. He's always talking to Abraham's descendants. And it doesn't really seem like there's that much concern for those who aren't Abraham's descendants. But then look at what Paul says in Romans chapter 3, verses 21 and 22. He says there, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested. Manifest, that's an important word when you talk about the incarnation. Manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. In these chapters in Romans, Paul spends a ton of time leveling the playing field for Jewish people and Gentile people, those who aren't Abraham's descendants. He spends all this time showing that everyone is in need of a savior, whether you're Jewish or not, whether you are Abraham's descendant or not. Everyone needs a savior to the point where he says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It turns out that Jewish people need a savior and Gentile people need a savior too. And this savior, this salvation is not offered through the law. This salvation is offered through Christ. And the idea that Paul seems to be getting at is that God can save anyone. From any tribe, any tongue, any background, any sin, any bloodline, because of what Jesus has done. It's not just about Jewish people. It's not just about one race. It's not just about one nation anymore. And this is the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham. That every nation 
can be blessed because anyone can be saved. God can save anyone that he wants to. Fulfillment number three, Jesus fulfills the prophecies of old. Maybe you've heard sermons before around Christmas time about listing all of the prophecies in the Old Testament that Jesus fulfills. Boom, 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 boom. One after another. Some of the bigger ones, Second Samuel 7, where David's kingdom is promised to be established forever. Maybe it's Psalm 110, where a descendant of David is said to be sitting at the right hand of God. Maybe it's Isaiah 53, where a servant would suffer the iniquity of others, and by his wounds, all these people would be healed. Maybe you think of Daniel 7, where a son of man is given an everlasting dominion. And there are others as well. As Mike pointed out, there's the passage on the front of your bulletin. There's a passage about a virgin being with child. There's a passage about a savior coming from Bethlehem. All over the place in the Old Testament, there are these prophecies that seem like they still just aren't really completed yet. It seems like things haven't really been neatly tied up. All the T's and the I's haven't been crossed and dotted. But then look at what Paul says in Romans chapter 15, verse 4. He says there, For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. So Paul encourages his Christians in Rome to look back at the Old Testament. Look at what was written formerly. And think about all those passages that didn't quite seem to make sense. When you read them before all those passages, that seemed a little bit strange, a little bit obscure, a little bit incomplete. Look back at them now and they will scream the name of Jesus. Look back at those prophecies of old. Look back at second Samuel seven. Look back at Psalm 110. Look back at Isaiah 53. Look back at Daniel seven. All these passages that don't just seem to make sense quite yet. And think about Jesus. And you'll see that his name fulfills every single one of them. And that can give you encouragement. There is a need for someone to fulfill the prophecies of old. And Jesus fulfills the need. The fourth and final one, Jesus fulfills the law. Deuteronomy chapter 30 is maybe one of the most explicit presentations of the law in all of the Old Testament. God makes it crystal clear to his people what is expected of them. Deuteronomy 30 verse 15. See, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil. If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you today by loving the Lord your God, by walking in his ways and by keeping his commandments and his statutes and his rules... Then you shall live and multiply, and the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. But if your heart turns away, and you will not hear, but are drawn away to worship other gods and serve them, I declare to you today that you shall surely perish. Okay. Can't get much more clear than that. God makes it clear that he expects his people to be righteous. He expects his people to be obedient. He says, look, here's good, here's evil. Here's life, here's death. Which one are you going to pick? Because if you follow me, then you're going to be blessed. If you don't follow me, then you won't. Seems pretty clear. Seems pretty simple. This is what's going to set them apart from everyone else around. But here's the problem. 
If you've read the Old Testament much, you probably know how the story goes. God's people commit to follow his law, commit to follow his rules, his statutes, his ways. They commit to be obedient, commit to be righteous. But then over time, kind of gets put on the back burner. All of a sudden, God sends some messengers and he says, tell these people to be obedient. Tell these people not to forget me. And most of the time, the Israelite people don't really take the messenger all that seriously. Sin continues, rebellion continues, idolatry goes on, and eventually something bad happens. Eventually, something bad comes, and all the people look in the mirror and say, Oh my goodness, that prophet was right, that messenger was right, we should be obeying God, and yet we have clearly missed the mark. We better repent, we better tell God we're sorry. And then... God accepts them. God forgives them. God shows them mercy. God shows them grace. And they promise that we will never do that again. But then it happens again. And again. And again. And again. The cycle goes on. And we read that story that happens over and over again. And we sometimes think, man, what is wrong with these people? Why can't they just keep their commitments? Why can't they just obey? Why can't they just be righteous? But then all of a sudden we have to look ourselves in the mirror too and realize, now wait a minute, the same can be said of me. But remember how we said that Jesus is going to change the idea of righteousness. We said that our righteousness needs to exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees if we hope to enter the kingdom of heaven, if we have any hope for salvation. Well, Jesus does change what righteousness is all about. With Jesus, righteousness is no longer about following external rules and checking all the boxes and keeping up appearances. For Jesus, righteousness is something that comes from within. It's a heart disposition before God. With Jesus, righteousness is no longer about our own effort. Righteousness is about God's help. He makes those promises about giving a new heart. He makes those promises about giving the Holy Spirit. Those are big changes to the idea of righteousness. But the biggest change that Jesus gives when it comes to the idea of righteousness is that really, in the big scheme of things, it's not our righteousness at all that saves us. Our righteousness is not what gets us into the kingdom of heaven. What gets us into the kingdom of heaven is Christ's righteousness, Christ's perfect obedience. Because where we fail, where the Israelites failed, where Adam and Eve failed to be obedient, to be righteous, Christ succeeded. And he took the penalty for us. Paul hits on this in Romans chapter 10, starting in verse 5. He's explicitly referencing Deuteronomy 30 as he writes these words. For Moses writes about the righteousness is based on the law, that the person who does the commandment shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth, and in your heart, that is the word of faith that we proclaim. And then look at verse 9. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord... And you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. 
saving righteousness, the kind that exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, the kind that can get people into the kingdom of heaven, it is not dependent upon outward obedience. It is not dependent upon our own moralistic efforts to be good people or to be a little bit more obedient or be a little bit more righteous. Our salvation is based on Christ's perfect obedience, the righteousness that he has shown. Now, for us, we're called to confess him as Lord. We're called to believe in our hearts that Christ was raised from the dead. There is a need for someone to fulfill the law, and Jesus fulfills the need. So, you put this together, these four different fulfillments that we're talking about, about Jesus defeating Satan, fulfilling the role of victor, Jesus fulfilling the promise to Abraham to bless all nations, about Jesus fulfilling the prophecies of old that all seemed a little bit too open-ended before Jesus came. When we talk about Jesus fulfilling the law and his perfect righteousness, we put it all together, and what do we see? The three words that I came up with are these. They're three words that might sound simple. They're three words that maybe you've heard before, but I really believe that we all need to hear them over and over and over and over. And those three words are these. Jesus is sufficient. It's that simple. Jesus is sufficient. All of these fulfillments prove it. And that gives us confidence. Remember back that Romans 15 passage, verse 4, how Paul said that as you look back through the scriptures, you can find encouragement, you can find hope, you might find endurance. I pray that as we look back, at all that Christ has done. Every perfect fulfillment, one after another, after another, after another. I pray that as we see what Jesus has fulfilled, we would leave more confident than ever that Jesus is completely sufficient to fulfill our salvation. And God seems to agree. Look at Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 through 11. Paul talks about what Jesus did. He specifically mentions that Jesus took the form of a servant. Again, that sounds pretty incarnational to me. And then he talks about the cross and Jesus submitting himself to the cross, dying a gruesome criminal's death for you and for me. And he says in verse nine, therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I pray that every single one of us, as we look through our Old Testaments, not throwing them out, not pretending as if they have nothing to teach us anymore. I pray that as we look through our Old Testaments, we will be encouraged as we see over and over again. That Jesus has fulfilled the role of victory over Satan. That Jesus has fulfilled the promise to Abraham. That Jesus has fulfilled the prophecies of old. That Jesus has fulfilled the law on your behalf and on my behalf. And I pray that as we look at those things, as we are continually reminded through the pages of the Old Testament that Jesus truly is sufficient... I pray that we would be reminded over and over again that Christ fulfills our salvation. Let's pray.
God, thank you that you sent you, you sent your son to die for us, that you sent your son in the form of a servant, submitting himself to death, even death on a cross. God, I pray that Jesus came and fulfilled all the things that we couldn't fulfill, that he meets all the requirements that we could never meet that he fulfills righteousness and that we are saved by his righteousness, not our imperfect and flawed attempts at righteousness. God, thank you that Jesus is sufficient. Thank you that he reveals more about who you are. That as we look at your son, we can truly know you. God, thank you that Jesus fulfills our salvation. That no matter where we come from, how we're different, what our background is, our bloodline, thank you that you have the power to save us through what Jesus has done. And God, I pray this Christmas season we will think a little bit more deeply every single week about the significance of all this put together. That we'll be more confident than ever in Jesus' sufficiency as our Savior. God, we love you. We praise you. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. If you have not yet placed your faith in Christ, I pray that you would this morning. I pray that you would make that decision, that you would repent of your sin, that you would be baptized. Feel free to talk to one of our elders. They'll be standing at the sides of the room. They'd be happy to answer any questions that you have. Happy to share all the different experiences in their lives, how Jesus has proven sufficient. How Jesus has fulfilled over and over and over again his role of Savior. Talk to one of those guys. I'd be happy to answer your questions. Happy to pray with you, whatever it is that you might need.